Our reading today comes from the second book of Samuel, chapter 7 and verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Have I not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day? I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I have appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with, flogging, with floggings, inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of, his, of this entire Revelation. Rightio. Well, g'day everyone. Uh, I'm Liam, the other pastor here, and it is a, 
great to be here uh, with you as we uh, yeah jump into the sermon time. Now, as we normally do, we do have a question time uh, coming up today after the sermon. Um, so that's my phone number there. Uh, so that's if you're watching along on YouTube. Hello, guys. Uh, or if you'd just like it to be a bit more anonymous when you're asked your question, uh, feel free to um, to text me. But otherwise, there'll be a chance to uh, uh, to ask in person. Um, but it, it has been great uh, getting into Second Samuel. I've really been enjoying it. It's been a wrestle uh, as we as we start to figure out well, what 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 do these very ancient words mean for us, uh, us God's people today. Uh, something I've been thinking about this week uh, actually has been uh, what to uh, is is buying gifts. Uh, I've found that. Uh, as my brothers have aged, it's been harder and harder to give them uh, to work out what gifts. When they were in uni, when they didn't have much money, uh, it was pretty easy to know what they'd like as a gift. You know, just anything other than two-minute noodles, uh, they were pretty pretty happy with. Uh, but as life's gone on, the people I'm giving gifts to, I've become more aware that there's nothing I can give them that they couldn't give themselves. Maybe you've got something, someone like that in your life, uh, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, uh, maybe a sibling, someone uh, who you're friends with, and you think, I, I want to give them a gift. I want to give them something meaningful. I want to give them something they'll appreciate. Uh, but I actually, I, I, they, they, could just, they could just buy whatever this thing is that I could give them. There's actually nothing I could give them that they couldn't just go and buy for themselves. Um, and that, and that's, that's a bit of a struggle, isn't it, when we think about that? How do we wrestle when we come to God then? If, if I struggle, uh, particularly with my parents, and I think, well, what, what do I get them, uh, when really there's nothing I could give them that they couldn't buy? Well, what do you do for God? Uh, if you're a Christian, uh, maybe you're not a Christian, uh, you've maybe thought about this, maybe you've never thought about this, but what, what could me as a human, as a person, give to God that he might appreciate? What kind of gift could I give to him? Uh, and we actually find David uh, in that kind of quandary, that kind of trouble as he, he comes to the start of this passage, because David uh, rightfully recognises uh, that all he has has come from God. That's how this chapter kicked off. Uh, after the, the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had giving, given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now, that's a, a bit of a summary. If you were in growth group this week, you would have read through a chunk of chapter 6 uh, and seen that that is indeed what David, uh, what God has done for David. In fact, the previous couple of chapters record just that. The Lord giving David defeat over his enemies. He's won these great victories. He's subdued them. Uh, we've read about the birth of many children to David. Uh, he's actually taken a new capital city uh, for the nation, a little bit like the Canberra thing. Oh, we can't, you know, let any one state have the capital in their state, so we'll just make a new one. That's what happened with Jerusalem. No, None of the tribes owned Jerusalem. It was an independent city. Uh, and so David went and conquered it, and that became the capital. So it was kind of like the Canberra of ancient Israel, just a little bit warmer, I believe. Um, but, but the story of these previous chapters has just been really the climax of God just giving and giving and giving to David. Um, he's, got his, he's got his capital city. Uh, his, his throne has been established in that city. Uh, we read about the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the uh, symbol of where God's presence dwelt. Uh, come on into the Ark. There was a bit of drama with that you would have dug, dug into in growth group. Uh, but, but it finally got there. Uh, David's built a palace. And that's all summed up here in verse 1, isn't it? God's got rest from, David's got rest from all his enemies. Uh, he's enthroned. He's got a palace. And he looks around and he clearly goes, God's given me so much. 
how can I say thank you? And he comes up with, I think, a great idea. Uh, you might disagree if you've read, read on. Uh, verse, uh, verse 2, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So it seems to be a well-motivated, good idea. Nathan certainly thought it was. Uh, yeah, this, this is a good thing. I want to say thank you to God. And while this desire to do something seems to be for the right motives, the whole rest of chapter 7 is devoted to God saying no. It feels like God's finding, how many ways can I show you, David, that no, this is not going to happen? And, and you know, why? Well, why is it so wrong for David to want to build a house for God? He's in a palace. Why should the ark of God be in a tent? Well, as we explore God's answer to David today, we'll not only see David's story, but we're going to see the danger of being well-meaningly misguided. I think that's what David's here. He's got good motivations. He wants to give something, God. He wants to say thank you. But he's barking up the wrong tree. And we'll see that danger as we think about what we might do for God. So as David says to God, look, God, I want to build you a house. Are we going to look at God's big, big no in four different parts? The first no God gives is no, I do stuff for you, David. You don't do stuff for me. That's his first no. The second no is no, David, a temple is not the goal. That's not what we're headed in all this. His third no is no, David, you won't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And his fourth no, and this is, this is where we're going to land it, is no, my king will build me a house. I know you're kind of my king, David, but I've got a king in mind who will build me a house. Um, so let's jump straight into God's first big no to King David. Um, David says, I want to build your house. And God says, no, you've misunderstood our relationship here, David. I do stuff for you. You don't do stuff for me. Uh, we pick it up there in verse 8. Um, so God's talking to Nathan, the prophet. He's saying, pass this on. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that, so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Yeah, I put a little bit of extra emphasis on some of those eyes, but you, you get the point, doesn't it? David says, hey, hey God, I'm going to do something for you. I've got this great idea. I've got this leftover cedar from my palace. Maybe, I, well, maybe it wasn't leftover, but he's got this idea. I'm going to build this really nice temple for you, God. Uh, somewhere the ark can go so it's not intended. God goes, no, this isn't our relationship. I do things for you. Everything you've got in, David, in life, David, I've given to you. And actually, I've got even more in store both for you and for my people. This isn't our relationship. See, David's come into this relationship kind of thinking, I've, I've got to do something. Uh, I don't know if you found yourself in a relationship like that. I certainly have, uh, where I land in a relationship uh, with somebody and I feel like, wow, you've been so generous to me. You've given me so much. I've... I've got to do something. I, I can't let you pay for dinner again. I, I can't let you do this thing for me. And oh, it just feels one-sided. And I, I want to contribute. I, I want to pull my weight. 
And it seems like David's kind of got a little bit of that, hey, God, you've given me so much, it's time for me to do something for you. And and God says to David, no, you know what, David? We're never going to get to that time in our relationship. That's not how we work. And it's exactly the same as we flick over to the New Testament. So remember last week we looked, we always read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Um, The New Testament says exactly the same thing. God continues to work with his people like this. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching in Athens and he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you reckon uh, Paul might have been reading uh, 2 Samuel 7 before he prepared this message? He's like, hey, that's not how it works. God doesn't need a temple where you take him food offerings and you do things for him. He doesn't need you to serve him. In fact, the other way around. He looks after you. He looks after you. There's a real danger here of being well-meaningly misguided, I think like David. And it's, the danger, I think, for us is that we want, to, we want to bring something. I think it's kind of natural. I think we re- referenced it a few weeks ago. There's that uh, very famous ad for favourites. Uh, what's the slogan for the box of chocolates, the favourites? What to... That's the one. What to bring when you're told not to bring a thing. It's the the idea, no, no, you you don't turn up to someone's house empty-handed. You've got to pull your weight, even if it's just a box of favourites. And we can sometimes think, well, we should do that for God. Uh, But God says, no, no, that's not how this works. There, There actually is nothing you can give me. I'm God and you are not. And that's a very humbling thing. To come into, that's a humbling relationship, to come into a relationship where we bring nothing to the relationship, as we say in in the Life Series, except a debt. That's the Christian gospel, that if you come to a relationship with God, you bring nothing but a debt, something that needs to be forgiven. But that's what the gospel requires. That's what the Christian faith requires, that we come as supplicants and recognize God as the provider. Uh, I think the, the, other, the other way we can see this express itself is a kind of attitude that says, look, I, I pray for other people, I don't pray for myself. I, you know, I don't want to be selfish, I want to, I want to give, I want to give. And, I give. and I think that can kind of creep into this attitude of pride, certainly can in my life, that I've got my life under control. Hey, God, I'm, I'm glad you're there. I might even ask you to help old so-and-so down the road because he really needs some help. But I, I'm, I'm okay on my own. And, and I think that can re- reflect this attitude that can creep in, this prideful attitude, this, this kind of attitude that says to God, look, God, you've done so much for me, like David. You've given me rest from all my enemies. You've given me children. You've given me a palace. The least I can do is this thing. Just, just let me pay for this meal. And we can find that same attitude creeping into us. Even after you've become a Christian, to say, oh, God, well, maybe I can... Just give you a little bit back. I could never pay it off completely, not trying to pay off the debt, but just want to give back a little bit. And God says this resounding to David. He says, no, that's, if you've got that lurking in your heart, this idea that, hey, by doing this, it's just the least I can do for you, God, there's a bit of a danger there. So that's the first no that God gives to David. <clears throat> the second one is that he says, David, you've got it wrong. A temple is not the goal. It's not where we're headed. 
Now, consistently through the whole Bible is this teaching that God is everywhere. We find it through the Old Testament, the New Testament, almost every page, that God's not contained or constrained to a temple or a place. He's the, the Lord of the heavens, of the whole earth, of all peoples. He's not a local God constrained to a temple. But God graciously made a place where he could symbolically be met. That's what's going on with the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and ultimately the temple in Jerusalem. God's not constrained to that as if, oh, now you've built the temple, God's locked in there and he can't build it, be anywhere else. No, but it was, it was a place where God graciously said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a symbolic place where you can come to meet with me. First, that tabernacle. And, and David gets a bit confused. Uh, he, he seems to be thinking like, God's in a tent and I've got a palace and that's not okay. And he says, I'll make this amazing palace, uh, this house, a temple. And God says, no, in this way, verse 5, God says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this very day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So you might read that, and if you know any of your, your ancient history, there was a temple that did get built in Jerusalem. Uh, it was actually by David's son, uh, King Solomon. So you might read that and you go, well, what's going on here? Because God says no to David here, but yes to Solomon later on. Um, but, but what we see in the building of the temple in Jerusalem is that the temple is only a temporary solution for God's people. A temporary solution, just like we saw last week, the law, God's law, was only a temporary solution as a guardian to look after God's people until Jesus came. The temple, in the same way, was a guardian, a temporal, temporary solution, a place where for a while God's people could come to meet with God until Jesus came. And we actually see that in this verse. The key here is what God's ultimate plan is what the goal of this whole exercise is. And it's not a temple. It's there buried in verse 7. See God's emphasis there? Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites. God's emphasis here is that I'm going to be with my people. And I don't need a building to do that. That is the emphasis. God's plan, his promise, is to be with his people. And that tent, the tabernacle or the temple that Solomon built were only ever a placeholder, a symbol for Israel that God was with them, a tangible location they could come, but really just a sign pointing forward to a time when God would truly be with his people. There's a couple of statements in the Old, there's a whole bunch of them. Here's just a couple of statements from the Old Testament that show that this was where God was heading. Uh, Leviticus 26, even as the tabernacle's being built, God says, hey, the time is coming. I will put my dwelling place among you. Uh, he says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. It's about God being with his people, not about a building. Ezekiel, it's the same thing. Uh, God's promising to this future time when he will put his sanctuary, his dwelling place amongst them forever. My dwelling place, God says, will be with them. I'll be their God. They will be my people. There's these promises all through the Old Testament that God's ultimate goal is to be with his people, to be with them, to walk with them. And when we've got those promises ringing in our ears, if then you open the New Testament and start reading the Gospels, 
we start to see some of the announcements of Jesus' birth with different eyes. Uh, Matthew 1, for instance, uh, Matthew 1, 22, when uh, the angel's telling uh, Mary what's going on uh, with Jesus' uh, conception and birth, and there's this little comment that says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is from Isaiah. The, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew, the author, puts in a little comment so we know how significant that is. It's, it's there in Matthew 1. Ma- Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew doesn't want us to miss that. So we should have all these promises of God ringing in our ears. Hey, my, my big plan is to be with my people. And Jesus comes, and what's his name going to be? God with us. See, Jesus fulfills all that the temple was pointing to. Uh, The tabernacle, the temple, they were signs, they were symbols, and they were all pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is God's dwelling place with us. Uh, The first chapter of John is all focused on that, uh, that God has come to dwell with his people. Jesus is where we come to meet with God. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to interact with God, you might go to the temple. Now we say, well, if you want to interact with God, how do you meet with God? Well, you come to Jesus, the person of Jesus, not a place. Um, Jesus is where we find forgiveness. If you had a problem with God as a sinner, and we all do in the Old Testament, you bring your sacrifice to the temple to find forgiveness. But it's actually in Jesus where sins are paid for. All these things were functions of the temple in the Old Testament fully replaced by the person of Jesus in the New Testament. And if there was any doubt that the coming of Jesus is what the temple was pointing to, if you flick all the way to the last chapter of the Bible, this picture in Revelation 21, the great climax of God's purposes, we read this as we're hearing the great city described in Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all all God's promises, particularly in this chapter around the temple. The goal was never a temple of cedar or even a temple of stone, some building. And I think we can be well-meaningly misguided as we think about the temple. Uh, You might hear some people talking a lot about uh, looking forward to a new temple being built in Jerusalem. Uh, You know, one day they'll demolish the Dome of the Rock and finally we'll get to build a new temple in Jerusalem and then we'll know, hang on, you read the New Testament, it doesn't talk about that. It points to Jesus being the new temple. We don't need a building in Jerusalem, we've got Jesus. And that's where the New Testament points us, to the person of Jesus. Don't be well-meaningly misguided into being sucked into being so focused on that. And it can happen. Whole lives can be sucked into thinking, oh, we've got to get this temple in Jerusalem built. No. Jesus came to replace the temple. He, he, He did away with the sacrificial system. He's the place we come to meet with God. We don't need a temple. We have Jesus. I think we can be well-meaningly misguided uh, if we're thinking about church buildings. Uh, now, until recently, we haven't really had to think about that much, but we've, we've got one now. We've got a facility that we get to think, well, how do we use this? What should it look like? What should it feel like? And, and I think there's a temptation to sort of go, well, I like, my, I like my house to feel nice. Well, God's house should feel nice too. 
I like my lawn to be mowed. Well, God's lawn should be mowed too, or whatever it might be that you say. I think we, that can creep in to think that this is a way I can honour God by making his building nice. Well, God says to David, no, that's, I don't live in temples made by hands. That's not how it works. And we'll touch on that in a little while as we think about that facility. Uh, but the other big, I think, uh, danger that we can slip into, and I particularly hear this slipping into our, mu- uh, our language around music and around worship, that we come to church to meet with God. And a lot of that language uh, is, is lifted from the Old Testament uh, and brought into our New Testament Christian gatherings and kind of saying, oh, as we gather today, God's presence will be with us. Or we invite you, God, to be with us. Or as we gather, this is where God is. Well, if we look at what the Bible teaches, that's not a New Testament theology. God's everywhere. Church isn't a symbol that God is here. God is everywhere. He's with us all the time. Church is a place where Christians come together to worship God. Is God here? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is he more here than he'll be after church? (laughs) Is he more here than he'll be? At any other time of the week or in the world? No. So God's presence, that's, that's not the way church meetings function. Now, we might have heightened emotions, heightened feelings. I think that's natural to happen with church. It's exciting. It's wonderful. God's designed us to encourage each other, to feel things more deeply when we're singing and hearing God's word preached and praying together and encouraging each other. That's fantastic. And that's the way God's designed us. But it's not this Old Testament language of, oh, as we gather, God's presence will be with us. I think we just have to be careful not to let that kind of slip into the way we think. Um, So on the other hand, don't think that God's only here, but God is with us always. Uh, And we see that through the New Testament, whether it's Matthew 28, uh, where Jesus promises to be with us right to the end of the age, uh, or the other places where, like John 14, where Jesus uh, promises that on going back to heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit to us to be with us forever. We have this great assurance that God's with us wherever we are, whenever we are, whether we're gathered as God's people, whether we're in a building or under a tree, or whether we're on our own doing our quiet time or just going about our daily work. He will be with us always. It's this great promise. Uh, God's presence doesn't ebb and flow. It's there all the time. So that's the second big reason that, um, that God says to David, no, I'm not going to let you build me a house. Uh, the third one uh, that, David's, that God says to David, he says, I'm not going to build you. You can't build me a house because I'm going to build you a house. And we see that particularly in verse 11 and on. Uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, you might have picked it up as we were reading there that uh, what, what God's doing here is a little bit of a play on words. Um, so especially with the coronation that happened yesterday, uh, have we heard the phrase, the house of Windsor? 
or the royal house. I'm seeing a couple of nods. Uh, so a house can be a building where you meet, or a house can be a line, a dynasty, a, a family. Uh, and that's the kind of language that God's picking pick up here. He says to David, hey, David, you want to build me a physical house, I'm going to build you a dynasty from your name. Uh, it, it sort of works. There's, there's other, other ways that these kind of plan words work. I had a really uh, great an analogy to this one. So if you can just imagine um, I play golf, which I don't, uh, regularly with people who are really rich, which I don't. Uh, say like uh, Gina Reinhart, I Googled it, who's the richest person in Australia. She's worth like $20 billion. It's She's got a lot, a lot of cash. But imagine I'm playing uh, golf with Gina, as I do every Monday, uh, and I notice that poor old Gina's golf clubs are looking a bit sad. Um, so I say, look, Gina, um, you pay for our club fees. Thank you. You've done so much for me. I'd love to buy you a new, new set of golf clubs. Uh, and she turns to me and says, Liam, no, no, no. You don't buy me a new set of clubs. I'm going to buy you a new set of clubs. So I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, it was a bit intense. Uh, a few days later, she gives me a call. Says, hey, Liam, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard to put this new set of clubs together for you. Um, I've already bought Toronto Golf Club, uh, Charlestown Golf Club, uh, Tookley Golf Club, and I'm in negotiation with a couple of others. Um, I'm going to have your set of clubs ready to go. Um, it, it should be ready by next week. And that's kind of in a similar way of what God does with David. I'm like, oh, I was just going to go down to Aldi. They had golf clubs on special. I was going to get them for you. And she's bought me golf clubs. And God says to David, oh, you were just going to use a bit of cedar and stone to build me a house? I'm going to build something from your family that will last forever. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Now, now Solomon was kind of that king. Uh, and a lot of God's promises through the Old Testament, we, we see a first fulfillment and a second fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, and most of them have this. They have a first fulfillment, which is a kind of fulfillment. You look at the promises, you're like, oh, kind of. And we see that with Solomon. Solomon's a famous king. He's wealthy. He builds a temple. But he doesn't fulfill all God's promises to David. We ultimately see them in the one from David's line, King Jesus. And again, as you come to the New Testament, that's why there's this emphasis on that. The first verse of Matthew, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, that word Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed king, son of David, son of Abraham. It's the announcement, this is the guy that we were talking about in 2 Samuel 7. This is the king who's going to fulfill those promises that God made, the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, who will build that everlasting kingdom, the fulfiller of all God's promises, including that one that's buried here in chapter 7, right in the middle in verse 13. This coming king, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that's God's fourth answer to why David can't build him a house. He says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house because my king is going to build me a house. And we might have thought that was Solomon, but in the grand scheme of things, it clearly is not. Because as we turn to the New Testament, this theme of Jesus building God's house comes through loud and clear. And we see that it has nothing to do with a physical temple in Jerusalem, but something far better. Uh, passages like uh, 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians are really clear on this, but I want to dip into Ephesians 2 just for a few minutes so that we can see this. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 19. 
consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Uh, We could go anywhere in the New Testament to see this, but it is so clear to see that God's house is not a building. The building that Jesus built is not some temple in Jerusalem. It's people, it's followers, it's worshippers. You too, Paul writes in Ephesians, are being built together into this holy house that Jesus is building. God's house is his people. That's where God lives, in his people. And this is hugely significant and has massive implications for us now. And I think I can illustrate this by working through some of the emotions I go through as I drive past old churches. Anyone recognize that one? Who can tell me where that old church is? Anyone see it? There you go, Lake Road, uh, as you're heading up just near Glendale. There's this old church, and I see old churches like this around the place, and I get a kind of confusing mix of emotions. One of them is, gee, that would make a nice house. Um, and then, But very quickly, usually it's sadness, uh, especially when they're run down. I go, wow, oh, that, that, that place used to be a church, it used to be where God's people were gathering. They used to have kids' church in one of those buildings. They used to sing and worship and annoy the neighbours on Sundays. And now it's just a parking lot for trucks. I don't know what they're doing with it now. And, ah, it kind of feels a bit sad. And I was thinking this week, I wonder wonder how the people who built it would feel as they drove past. If they could, they're probably all dead now. The people who raised the money, who built the building, who laid the foundations. that That was built a long time ago. But who did that? The Christians who put up this church. How would they feel if they drove past it today and saw it kind of like that? Now, I hope that, yeah, maybe they'd be a little bit of sorrow, but I actually hope that they wouldn't be devastated. I hope that there would be a deep joy and you'd say, oh, look, aren't aren't you sad that this is the church that you built, that this is the state, that this is what's left of it? I hope they'd say, Liam, you've misunderstood what we were trying to do there. That, That building, that was only ever a tool to build God's house, and we did build God's house. Do you know how many kids went through Sunday school there? Do you know how many people became Christians? Do you know how many people matured in Christ and went out as missionaries to their neighbours and their workplace? Hey, we, we, we built God's house, and it had nothing to do with the building. That, that was just a tool to help use it. That was just a tool to help build God's house. And I want to encourage us to kind of foster that kind of attitude because there's a real risk that we can get hung up on what we do lasting. I think there's a risk, especially when facilities and resources come into the mix, that you think, oh, wouldn't it be sad if one day that building was used as an Airbnb? Well, no, like, really, does that matter? As long as now our work is focused not on building walls or driveways or even kids' church rooms, but our work is building the church. And that's what Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, For we are God's co workers in we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. 
by the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. What we find here is an invitation to be part of something eternal. I think about this sometime. What will be left after I go? Yeah, will anyone carry on breeding my sheep? Uh, I don't know what it is for you. Will, what will I leave for my kids? What will be my legacy? Well, we have an invitation here as God's children to be part of the family business, to build God's eternal temple on Christ's foundation, the chief cornerstone, to invest in people who, who aren't just people but are eternal beings. You get that? You, I, the person you're sitting next to, is an eternal being. The kids are out there in kids' church, our neighbours. God's created us and we're going to last forever. And we have a chance to build people into God's house that will last forever. That is the invitation that is, that is on offer for us. And so as we think about how to do that here at Morisset and now as we're planning up at Marmong as well, Let's use buildings. Let's use facilities. I'm so glad we've got walls and a roof, especially when it starts raining here. It's, it's much easier to do that with facilities. But that's not what we're building. We're building God's eternal spiritual house. Please join me and we'll pray before we jump into some questions. Father God, we thank you and praise you uh, that you as the Lord of the universe look down on humanity with such compassion and love that you chose to build for yourself a spiritual house made of people, made of worshippers like us. We thank you for the invitation to each one of us uh, to come and be part of your spiritual house, your family, your children. We thank you that you didn't look at us and discard us as uh, not good enough to be part of that house. We thank you that you don't look at anyone and discard them, but that you offer in Christ redemption and cleansing, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, meaning and purpose. And we thank you that as we come into your family, you invite us to be part of that program, part of that purpose of building yourself a group of worshippers. And we pray that you would help us to see that, to get on board with that, to be excited about that. And while we, we do things with facilities and work and all sorts of other things in our lives, that we would not forget this eternal invitation to be part of building something that lasts forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I will turn my phone off aeroplane mode so you can text me. Uh, Hannah's going to whiz around with a... Here we go. Hannah. With a mic. Uh, so wave your hand. Thanks, Sue. Hi, Liam. Two questions. Far away. Genesis. Yep. God said, build me a tabernacle to dwell in. Yep. Did the Israelites believe that God was shoved in that little box and that was the only place he was? Um, I don't think so um, because God th consistently through the Old Testament actually made it very clear that that wasn't the case. A uh, place like Isaiah 66 make it really, really clear. God says very similar things. I, <laughs> I made the whole world like you're going to put me in a, in a temple. Uh, I, I think they would have understood technically that this isn't only where God is, but it was a pretty blatant expression of God's presence, especially in the wilderness. They had the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire where God graciously 
showed them his presence. He was everywhere, but he showed it to be here, which gave them a lot of comfort. Um, so I think they would have understood that. But I could imagine if I was an Israelite, I would have very quickly slipped into thinking, well, almost like if I go behind that tent, God can't see me because he's over there at the tabernacle. That, 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 that would be where my heart would start to drift, and I think that's the danger for me, yeah. And how is um, David's dynasty any different to the um, Abram's covenant? How is Ab David's dynasty different to the Abrahamic covenant? Mm. Um, oh, I think it just narrows, narrows down. It's, it's part of the same promises fulfilled in Jesus. So the Abrahamic covenant that uh, from your descendants all the earth will be blessed um, and I'll make your name great. Um, this is particularly around that king um, and so it narrows down. It's still within... Abraham's one of David's sorry one of Abraham's children so does yeah so it's there's overlaps Abrahamic covenant quite broad and the, these promises narrow as they kind of go down and get closer to Jesus yeah thank you cool. thanks yeah while we're finding another one in person I've had a couple of texts um here's one um I hear some church leaders say we invite you God or we invite your Holy Spirit to our meeting get what they're saying but is this misguided good intentions yep I, th I believe so. Uh, who are we to invite God in here? It's it's His world. He made it. I don't get to I don't get to do that. He's al He's already here, and I think that can kind of reinforce that um, I've got to use a certain set of words or something. That God wasn't here, and we say the right words, and now He is. Um, and that, I, yeah, I, I I would hope it's misguided good intentions. But there we go. Uh, Arby, far away. Um, yeah, still on that point. What about the verse that in, in Matthew where it says, um, you know, where two or three gather, uh, I will, uh, there I, I'm in their midst. Yeah, thanks, uh, Arby. Doesn't that sort of, you know, speak to that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. So um, uh, I, there, there is a verse somewhere, and uh, I think Mark says that he quotes the Old Testament by saying, somewhere it is written, uh, which means that we're allowed to do that too, which is good. Um, but go look it up. Um, but the context of that, Jesus is actually talking about church discipline. He's talking about re rebuking someone. So it's, a, it's, it's another one of those misquoted verses. It's, oh, there's two or three of us, so we know that God's here with us in the room. Does that mean when I'm on my own praying God's not there? No, like so. There's a whole biblical theology that just says that that can't be what it means. Um, so in that particular context, God's saying He's talking about church discipline. Um, he's talking about church discipline. He's saying, look, when you make decisions and it's pretty serious, and you're talking about maybe disciplining someone, maybe even saying, hey, we we don't want you to come here for a while. Like it's a big deal. He's saying, if you follow this process and do it, I'm with you in that. This isn't just a human thing. So where two or three of you gathered. So we, the, the big lesson for those is proof texts, you know, just one verse. Um, never build a theology off a proof text. Um, build a theology off the whole Bible and then go, well, what does this text mean? Um, but, yeah, I think that would, be, uh, that would be that one. But, yes, I think that's probably one of the reasons. where, And I've heard that said in churches that, oh, we're two or three gathered. God's here. Two or three of us here, so God's here. Well, yeah, but he'd be here if it was just me too, um, just as much. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I've got another text one come in, um, which is a little question on particularly verse 14. I'll be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And it was just attached to a please explain. Um, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, so what's the go? If Jesus is that son, 
how does he get punished when he does wrong? Because Jesus never did wrong because he was God and he never, how does that work? Well, that's one of these, these promises that you go, well, how does this fit together? Uh, again, as we go to books like Isaiah, uh, and I, for the life of me, can't remember the chapter, but where it's talking about this suffering servant. So one of the, one of the things in the Old Testament, the Jews had a few promises of characters, people who were going to come. And what they didn't realize were all those people were going to be the same person in Jesus. So they knew there was going to be this anointed king, the victorious king. They knew there was going to be someone called a suffering servant who would serve his people, who would do, quote, who would, who our sins would be paid by his floggings. That's from Isaiah. And the beauty of God's promises is they they convalesce, they come together in Jesus. This anointed king will be the one who will save his people by taking on himself the floggings for their sins. Um, so this is one of those passages where like, is that what's going on? I, I think that's what's happening in, in verse 14. Um, so humanly speaking, God does punish the human kings of Israel when they do wrong. That uh, We see that through history. Ultimately, Jesus, God's true king, he is punished with the floggings, with the lashings of men, but not for his own sin, but for our sin. So I think there's an extra, extra line to that. Love to chat a bit more of that over dinner if you want to text in or come and see me. So, and oh, yes, Mal, and we'll make this the last one. Yeah, we sing. quick one, as always. Um, I, I'm kind of curious just, so church, originally Greek, means gathering, right? Yes. So nothing to do with a building. Um and you've put a solid argument against the temple being <laughs> so how do you define what we call church like mm. a gathering of christians coming together what makes a gathering of christians different to a church service just a quick one mal yes. um fan, fan t- I'll, I'll try and give the quick answer yeah so the word gathering you're right uh it, it means assembly it's actually used in the bible to describe a riot at one point so it, it literally is just the word for any gathering of people but as you move through the new testament the word church the word gathering is used to describe a group of people who are defined by their gathering so especially you see this in the new testament letters um so when paul writes a letter to the, he says to the church in Corinth. Well, what, what, what's that mean? Is it just any group? Of, no, well, he's, he's got in mind a particular group of people. We know that because he names some of them. He says, greet this person, greet this person. So, so as we see the New Testament unfold, this is my 30-second answer to a two-hour answer. Um, the church is defined by who gathers together. That is the local church. Uh, and there's certain things that we believe need to be there to be part of that church. So the New Testament says um, Paul's writing when he sends Timothy around um, to help establish churches. Uh, he says, appoint leaders. Okay, so you need to have leaders. They've got to exercise this authority. You've got to do these certain things. Um, so uh, I would say from the New Testament, we can't say any gathering is church. Oh, this is church because we've got a couple of Christians and we're gathered. Tick. Well, yes and no. We, we are gathered but are we the gathered people of God as defined by the way the New Testament paints that with leadership, with teaching, with prayer, with structure, with church discipline, with encouragement, all these marks of things that should be part of a people who are defined by their gathering. Um, so we've got people who are sick today uh, or can't make it today who are part of our gathering, who gather with us. They are part of our church, even though they're, so they're not Oh, they're not, they're not part of our church today because they're not gathered here. No, they're still part of our church. But someone who never gathers with us, 
No, well, they can't. Oh, I come to Lake Make Church. Oh, do you belong to? Oh, when were you here? Oh, it was three years ago I went there. No, no, you don't gather with them. So it's defined by who gathers together, um, but, but not necessarily so. But, yeah, there's a little bit more than 30 seconds. Uh, but I'm going to invite the musos up, and we're going to sing that wonderful new song again. Uh, what a cracker, the goodness of Jesus. Thank you.